Let's pray once again before we turn our attention to the word. Lord, we come to you as your people, and though we may be few in number, we gather with those in Christ who hear from you and receive your word. Uh, Encourage us that we are trusted in your word that for ages has given people hope, has directed them, has given them strength to withstand the fiercest persecution man could throw at them. Your word is true, and it is that by which we are enabled to live godly lives, to trust in you. Lord, give us confidence in your word. Give us the conviction that it is true, and that we would do well to devote ourselves to understanding it, that we may know you and live according to the life you've set before us. We pray for conviction of sin, where we see areas in our life that don't match your word. We pray for encouragement, and above all, we pray that Christ would be clear, and we would know him and trust in him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask you a question, and you don't have to answer out loud, but I want you to think about it. And that is, are you content with the amount of money you're making now? Are you really content? Or do you think, do you maybe have this thought in your life at times, my life would be so much better if I could make, say, 50% more. Would that, would that move you from discontentment to contentment? Um, here's the curious thing. I can pretty much guarantee, if not in a crowd this size, if you expand it a little bit more, it would be true, that, that some people say, yes, I would be content if I had more money, but those people are probably actually making as much money that other people want. See the thing with contentment? Uh, They figure that some people, so so the amount of money that some people would want is the amount of money that other people have, yet those who have it aren't content. They want more. The odd thing about contentment is it always seems just outside our grasp. We think we would be happy If we had this, or if we had this, except we wouldn't. We might be happy for a little bit, but we'd want more. That's why they say the grass is always greener on the other side. And no matter what side you're on, it always looks like you have, you know, the other side is better. My family uh, had goats at one point, and they would kind of eat grass. And at one point we had them stationed in different sections. Well... They both jumped the fence to get into the other section because the grass looked greener outside the fence. And that's how we are. We, we want to get somewhere else and then we'll be happy. I, I, someone pointed me to a book that had an interesting perspective on this. It's by a man, uh, Frankel Victor. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. But he had a perspective on contentment coming out of his time in a Nazi concentration camp. And he was a prisoner in several different concentration camps and he worked as a doctor. So He saw lots and lots of misery. He saw also firsthand that no matter what degree, and this is what he observed in his book, no matter what degree of misery somebody's in, they're always discontent and think they would be happy if they were just a little bit better. Um, And he saw that even in a concentration camp. And he said that discontentment is like air. And that no matter what the size of our misery is, it's always going to fill it up. And therefore, we'll always want more. Uh, In preparation for this message, I was reading a book entitled 
It's a great title. When Will My Life Not Suck? It's a book on contentment. And the chapter, uh, particularly on contentment, opens with these questions. Uh, and, and they're on your, your application questions for you to think about later on. But, but the questions are, um, life, what's well, not questions, fill in the blank. Life is going to be really good when? What would you put there? Life would be great only if. I know I'd be happier if I had. Life was really good back when. Chances are there's, there's something to at least some of the questions you would fill in there. And that shows some degree of discontentment in your heart. And no matter where we are, we have the tendency to think, if I had just a little bit more, a little bit better, okay, then I'd be happy. Well, the passage today, we're going to see Paul's perspective on contentment. And he has a lot of misery in his life. But instead of being discontent, he is actually remarkably content. He says even, I found the secret to it. There's a secret to being content that Paul says he found, and and we want to know what it is. So the passage we're going to look at today is uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. And we want to see, I know I want to see, I hope you do as well, the secret to contentment. So let me read the passage. Philippians 4, uh, verses 10 through 14. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length, You have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. Now, interesting passage. I love it as we get to the end of the book, and Paul has not just general truths, but his personal experience with these general truths. There's a lot we can learn from here. And I want to zero in at the beginning what I think is the most interesting thing about this contentment. Um, First of all, remember Paul's circumstances, okay? Paul is in jail. And back then, jails didn't feed you with public money. No, if you liked eating, you had to have friends who would bring you money and give it to you so you could eat. And the Philippians did that. The Philippians sent him a gift that would sustain him in jail. And and this gift was possibly uh, the difference between living and dying. And Paul writes, really, this entire book of Philippians as a thank you note to them. This is Paul's thank you note for the gift that he gave them. Now, it's a really, really interesting thank you note, though. One that probably has never been written before that or since in the history of all thank you notes. Because he has, he's happy, but has a perspective on that happiness. Notice verse 10. So he's happy. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that you are thinking of me. And he thanks God, he rejoices in God, that these people are concerned with him. And he rejoices greatly. That's a bit of an unusual phrase for Paul. So he, he is really, really happy. Yet, at the same time, he, he doesn't say that the gift was something that he absolutely needed. And notice what he says in verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need. 
In other words, Paul's doing this sort of awkward dance thing where he's saying, I really appreciated your gift. It brought me joy. But I, I don't say this out of a sense that there's a, a deep need because in Christ, he has all his needs met. Um, it's kind of interesting. I read different commentaries when I prepare uh, a message. And, and sometimes I read commentaries that were written by non-Christians people who think that the Bible is true, or is, who is interesting, but they don't actually think it's true. And they provide somewhat of an interesting perspective on the, the matter. And almost all of the non-Christian commentaries I read, they thought Paul was kind of like gently rebuking them for not giving the gift sooner. This is sort of like a, a gentle rebuke. Now, why didn't you get it to me sooner? That's why he, he doesn't just say, oh, I needed this so much. But I think the Non-Christian commentaries are wrong there. I I think they don't understand the secret to contentment in Christ. Because Paul, as much as he appreciates the gift on the one hand, he really believes that in Christ he'll have his needs met. And therefore, he has this interesting thing of, yes, thank you for the gift on the one hand, but it's not his salvation on the other. And that tells us something about Paul's contentment. Um, I think we can see this if we look at three, uh, three areas, three realities. And you can see those on your outline. One, the context of real need. The context of real need. And this is basically to just to point out that Paul, like everyone else, really had needs. Okay, The situation that Paul was in and the very situ- situations that we're in, whether they're easy or hard, The situation really matters. The context is significant. You see, God made us physical creatures. We live in a physical world. We need food. We need shelter. We need these things. The Bible realizes that that physical need. And we see that in this letter. Uh, Paul writes from prison. And one of the things that comes through in Paul is that he really wants to see his friends. But he can't because he's in jail. And that's hard. It would be hard to be in jail and want to see your friends and not be able to. Um, Paul also recognizes that one of his friends, Epaphroditus, almost died. And Paul says that if he had died, Paul would have had sorrow upon sorrow. To lose a friend is gut-wrenching, and Paul realizes that. So, Paul is not saying that the situation just doesn't matter. Paul recognizes the situations that we're in do matter. God cares about those situations. Paul also recognizes that there's a difference. He he talks about how he he knows what it's like to have plenty, and he knows what it's like to be hungry. And you see, that, that recognizes that there's a difference between those two. There's a difference between pinching your pennies and experiencing hunger pains, and then on the other hand, being filled and having plenty. There's a those are two different experiences, and one is profoundly hard and sad, and is suffering, and the other is a great blessing. Paul, you have to understand, doesn't level the situation so that whether he's in a a time of crisis and suffering, or if it's a time of plenty, it really doesn't matter. No, for Paul, the situation actually does matter. Now, you might think, yeah, but that seems completely obvious. (laughs) The situation matters. Why do we come to church and, and say the situation matters? I just, I know that intuitively. Well, I I hope you do, but you have to realize that that some people, in the name of religion, 
uh, particularly Eastern religion, and sometimes within Christianity, they try to really make the situation not significant. Let me give you an example, uh, a movie that that we've seen a couple times at our house and maybe you've seen. Um, We like the movie Kung Fu Panda. Uh, Have you ever seen that? Um, It's an interesting story with, I think, a cool soundtrack. And there's a scene in the movie uh, where the evil villain, who's really, really evil, escapes from jail, and and somebody comes to the, the martial arts master, and by the way, that guy is like the model of contentment. He is very, very content in the story. Somebody comes to him and says that, you know, the evil villain just escaped. He says, I have bad news. The evil villain just escaped. And, and the martial arts master responds by saying, there is no good news or bad news. There's just news. And what he means there is the secret to contentment is recognizing that the situation just doesn't matter. It's just news. And there's no goodness or badness to it. Now, friends, he may have been content that way in one sense, but that's a radically different kind of contentment than the Bible recognizes. Because the Bible recognizes, the Bible knows all about good news, doesn't it? It knows that the death of Jesus on the cross for us is profoundly good news, and that to experience the full weight of our sin is profoundly bad news. The Bible does not level the situation so that it's all the same. That's not the secret to contentment. Uh, Other people try to say that the secret to contentment is just getting rid of all desires. And we joke about this at our house. You know, we have a young family, a large family, and we say, well, everything will be okay if people just don't have preferences. That's going to make our house run smoothly. We're joking. Of course we don't want that. And, And the Bible doesn't want that either. The problem isn't our desires. That's what I think Buddhism would say. It's this, just get rid of all desire and you'll be happy because you won't want anything. That's not the Bible's answer. Because the Bible actually says our desires are profoundly good. And C.S. Lewis, I think, sums it up really well when he says that the problem with our desires is not that they're too strong, but they're too weak. And we satisfy ourselves with the wrong things. No, desires are good. The Bible knows the difference between a good situation and a bad situation. The secret to contentment isn't to level the situations and get of our desires. It's actually something else. And we'll look at that. The second point, the secret to contentment. Look at verse 11. Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then he says, verse 12, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abounding and being in need. He says, I've learned it. I've learned the secret to contentment. That's what Paul says. Now, what is that? I think it's found in verse 13. Verse 13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And from the context, him who strengthens me is Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Paul says. In any and every situation... He can be content because Christ strengthens him. Now, this is a kind of a popular verse, so I think the first thing we need to do to learn the secret to being content is to put this verse in context and realize what it's not saying. See, this verse can be, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, can be dangerous if we take it out of context. So, for instance, let's say, I'm just making this up here, okay, uh, that the church needs a new roof. No indication of that, okay? Building grounds, committee, don't, don't panic. Uh, just... Illustration's sake, it needs a new roof. And, and maybe you think to yourself, wow, 
Never worked on a roof in my life. I don't know which end of the hammer to use. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I'm going to get up there and I'm going to do a new roof. Well, I don't think it's going to end well. Not for you or the roof. Okay? That's not what this verse means. Or, or some people could take it, well, I don't need to prepare for Sunday school. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He'll give me strength in the moment, and I can do it. That's not what this verse means either, because the Bible talks about studying hard to show yourself approved. It talks about the value of working at a skill to learn it well. Now, the Bible affirms that. This verse has nothing to do with just you know, going for something and then believing that God will strengthen you. Not that he doesn't want to give you help in times of need. He certainly does. Pray for help and strength. Even when we know what we're doing, we still need help and strength. But the verse is actually very specific. It's talking about uh, how we can be content in whatever circumstance we're in. Um, The all things, when he says, I can do all things, that's a reference to what he said just before, in any and every circumstance. So the all things is referring to whatever circumstance he's in, whether it's in plenty of having, you know, being filled, or if it's in hunger and he's, you know, starving to death, Christ strengthens him in all things, and that's why he can be content. Uh, you know, in situations that would make us say, I don't know how in the world I'm going to get through this, Paul says he can be content because he knows how he's going to get through it. He knows Christ will strengthen him. One commentator, one Christian commentator, put it quite rightly, I think, like this. He said, verse verse 13, he translates, I am strong enough for all of these circumstances. Circumstances having plenty, going hungry, all those circumstances. I am strong enough through all these circumstances in my union with Christ who strengthens me. If we're united to Christ, then we're united to Christ not just in the good times, when things are going well and we're experiencing lots of blessings, we're united with Christ in the bad times as well. We're united to Christ in the times that hurt. And in Christ, we have all the strength we need to face those times. And therefore, we can be content. Contentment is basically recognizing that what you see with your eyes in any situation is not the full reality of what's going on. The state of your finances is not the full reality of your situation. Your health, however bad or good that might be, that's not the full reality of our situation. Um, The full reality of our situation is that you are there with Christ. And when you're weak in yourself, you can be strong in Him. One person put it well when he said, when life stinks, your perspective shrinks. And that's what happens. When there's a trial, when it's hard, we have a tendency to see nothing else but that trial. And this passage is trying to expand our horizon so that we also see Christ there with us. And know that in him, we have strength for whatever situation we're in. Now, important implication here. Paul says that contentment is finding the strength through Christ in those situations that are hard, not to get out of them. Now, maybe there's a way to get out of them, and we should do that. But you see, the secret to contentment isn't to hope that your situation is going to change. Paul knows that there could be difficult times in store for these Christians. He, 
He can't encourage them by saying, hey, look, I think it's going to go really well for you. No, the, the persecution's increasing. The Christianity is becoming more and more a, a, you know ostracized religion. It's going to get harder for them. Contentment is not getting out of that hard place. Contentment is finding God's strength in and through that hard place. Uh, I was recently uh, kind of saw this in a rather pointed way. Um, somebody found out that I was a pastor, and then he gave me a, a blessing. I hadn't experienced this before, so it was, uh, it was my first time. Actually, it happened here, so some of you might have witnessed it uh, at, at, a, at a funeral. But, um, but in that blessing, he blessed me that I would have all my, my rewards now, and I'd be wealthy and happy and healthy all now, and, and everything that I deserved, I would have it all now. And I sat there kind of like, or stood there, like, I can't believe I'm, I'm hearing this because this isn't a blessing. Actually, it's more like a curse. The Bible says you don't want all your rewards now. You, you don't want everything good in, in this life. You want it in the life to come. You know, your, your best life now means your worst life then. That, that's the way the Bible thinks. So, so looking and finding contentment in the idea that our circumstances might change and improve, and, and that's how we're going to be happy, and maybe God's going to give that to me. Well, maybe he is, but that's not going to be your source of contentment. That's not going to be how you're content. No, the contentment that God is interested in is the kind of contentment where you have that strength in Christ in and through those hard times. You know, the other thing, so so one of the reasons I think, particularly if I look at my own heart, that I can be discontent is when I'm in that place where I think, how in the world is this going to work out? When you feel like you're in a place where you don't have the resources in and of yourself to do what God is, is calling you to do. When you're in that place where you look at what you have and you think, I, I, I can't make this work. That, that's a hard place to be. And it's in, in and through those situations that God gives you the strength in Christ that you can be content. That's what this verse is saying. And the other thing that I think makes contentment uh, not happen, we, we are discontent, is when we have a, uh, an attitude of entitlement. When we think, I deserve something. And, and we, we kind of uh, you know, might express it to ourselves or out loud differently. We might say, why does life have to be so hard? Or we might be shocked at the circumstances that we're in, and we think to ourselves, how could this ever happen to me? Or we might think, why did, this, why did I have to be the one to get this? Why did I have to be the one to walk through this? And then we might look at somebody else, and their life is going particularly well, and we think, hey, I've done at least as good of a job as that person. Why can't I have that too? And we get this sense of entitlement. And we're discontent because we think we're not getting what we deserve. But this passage would tell us, and we need to hear this, we don't deserve an easy life. That, that's not written in the Bible somewhere, that, that we're going to get it handed to us, and it's going to be easy for us. You don't deserve an easy life. You don't deserve a life free from pain. You don't have a contract with God where he promises you that if you do this minimal level of obedience, he'll give you this minimal level of an easy life. That, that, that doesn't exist. If you want to put yourself on a scale and ask, what do I deserve? You realize you deserve God's just condemnation. 
because we've offended him. We've not lived our lives to his glory. We deserve his wrath. You don't want what you deserve. You want God's mercy and God's kindness and forgiveness, which, which in Christ you can have. If you're outside of Christ and, and you don't know that, trust in Jesus, believe in Jesus, and he, he forgives your sins. He, he gives you mercy and grace by, by you clinging to him as the source of your salvation. And then you won't have condemnation. You won't have what you deserve. And see, if we really believe that, it makes an attitude of entitlement really hard to have. Because we realize that, that what we're given is not what we deserve. It's so much better than that. Now, friends, I need to add another level here, another, another aspect to being content that Paul talks about in here. And that is simply knowing about Christ and isn't enough to have that kind of a contentment. That's not, Paul says that there's something else here. It's, it's the idea that for Paul, contentment here is not just a, a mood he's in. It's not just a state of mind. Contentment is something he learned. Did you see that here? Look here at, Paul says, look at the language here. I have learned to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. Do you see language here that talks about learning and knowing how to do something? See, I think often we view contentment as a mood. You know, I'm in a mood that's content, and then I, you know, fall out of that mood, and then I get another mood, and then it comes back again. You see, Paul, I don't think, wouldn't understand what we're talking about if we talk that way. For him, contentment is more like a skill that must be practiced. And that's what you see here him doing. Now, let me just, uh, to try to help you understand this, get a, a bit philosophical for a second, and then I'll, I'll kind of anchor it in with an illustration. So if you don't follow the, the philosophical part, I think you'll get the illustration. When we talk about knowing something, there's three different kinds of knowledge we could have, three different ways of knowing something. One, we could talk about the knowledge of a person. I know him or her. When you talk about knowing a person, you don't just mean you know a bunch of facts about them, you know, their hair color, you know what they like to do. You mean that you know them as a person. There's a unique knowledge there. We could talk about knowledge of a fact. I know that such and such fact is true. Or we could talk about knowledge of a skill. I know how to ride a bike. I know how to play the piano. If you say, I know how to play the piano, it doesn't mean you've memorized a bunch of facts about the piano but never actually laid your hands on the keys. No, it means you know a skill. And see, all these kinds of knowledge are applicable to the Christian life. To be a Christian is to be one who knows God. That's what Paul says when he he talks in chapter 3 about, I want to know Him. He doesn't just mean he wants to know a bunch of facts about Jesus' life. Satan knows those facts about Jesus' life. He wants to know Christ as a person. And the Christian life then also involves knowing facts. From the book of Philippians, we know that the one who has begun a good work in us will perfect it on the day of Christ Jesus. We know that Christ will return and transform our humble bodies into His glorious nature. So being a Christian involves knowing a person, involves knowing facts, and finally, it involves knowing skills. And that's what we see here. The skill of being content. Paul says that he knows how to be content. And that means more than the fact that he's in a relationship with Jesus 
and that he knows certain facts are true. He's learned the skill of it, and that's different. Now, why is that important? It's important because I don't want you to think that simply being in a relationship with Jesus and knowing a few facts that I've told you here this morning will mean that you can just go out these doors and be perfectly content. It's not going to work like that. The Bible doesn't even expect it to work like that. The Bible expects that you will put it into practice and work at it and work at that skill. I'll give you an illustration. Um, My wife and I recently went to England. We had fun there. And you probably know that, uh, you might know, that in England, they drive on the opposite side of the road. And from an American perspective, I might say it's the wrong side of the road that they drive on. Uh, But anyway, you probably know that fact. And I knew that fact as well. But let me tell you. There's a huge difference between knowing the fact that they drive on the other side of the road and then orienting your driving to actually being able to do it when you get there. Because you have to constantly think about it. You have to reorient your life to to really a different reality in the car as you're on one side of the car instead of the other. And and I bruise my arm because I try to, to shift with my right hand, but you shift with your left hand. And I knew the facts, but see, the facts weren't enough to know. I needed to develop the skill to actually be able to do it. And you see, that's what we need to do in the Christian life. We don't want to just be like dumping you in England and, oh, by the way, they drive on the other side of the road, think you should be fine, go out there and do it. No. Part of what we do as a church is developing those skills together. So, so what do those skills look like? Let me just break the skill of being content down to a few other things, the, the more practical skills we need to develop. Here's a few of them. And you could just kind of keep adding on to this list. I had to cut it so the sermon didn't run forever. First, we need to develop the skill of disciplining our mind so we think about what is good. And we learned that in the sermon last week. The passage right before this says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You see, that involves disciplining our minds, quieting our hearts. It's a process. A process we're not going to get right the first time we try. And in my own heart, sometimes I I look at the the times I'm discontent, and the silly things, the utterly silly things that make me discontent. And I think to myself, you know, part of, you know, it's, it's pathetic, but part of the skill here is recognizing that's pathetic and reminding ourselves what's important and disciplining our minds to value those things that we ought to value. That's part of what it means. So one, the skill of disciplining our minds to think about what is good. Number two, the skill of actively putting our hope in the promises of God. Putting our hope in the Lord. We read in the Bible lots of commands to put your hope in the Lord. Psalm 130 says, put your hope in the Lord. Psalm 42, hope in the Lord. Now, I think this is a command we need to really sit down and ask ourselves, what is it actually saying? Because it's not just a great, you know, religious Bible phrase that we can throw around. Oh, hope of the Lord. It, it means something. It's given a command over and over again. The Bible assumes that we can control what we're hoping in. It doesn't mean that you turn it on and off like a light switch. It's not that easy to control, but it is. We're, we're commanded to do something. We're commanded to, to make that which we're looking forward to, that which we're expecting. That needs to be the Lord. And it's a transaction where we stop hoping in something over here and start hoping in the Lord. It's a 
It's a, a process of from to, moving from hoping in the wrong thing to hoping in the right thing. And we're supposed to do it again and again. It's not just a one-time commitment to Christ sort of thing. It's daily, even every hour. Well, what is my hope in? My hope is in the Lord. And, and putting your hope there, that takes skill. And there's the skill, and this is one that's important, the skill of understanding what your heart is actually trusting in. The Bible tells us to know our hearts. Uh, Solomon tells us, above all else, guard your heart. Because the heart is the wellspring of your soul. Guard your heart means guarding your heart against idols. Guarding your heart against trusting in the wrong things. And, and the heart's the wellspring of the soul. It's really, really important. Above all else, guard your heart. Now, some of you have military experience. If, if you're in, in the military and the military is... Your, your, your military needs to guard something that's important. They probably don't just put the least experienced soldier out there. Here's a gun. Guard this. I talked to a Secret Service person a, a while ago who was trusted with guarding the president. There lots and lots of training that he had to go through. Um, it's important you, you put a lot of effort into guarding it. And friends, our hearts are important. So the Bible calls us to guard our hearts. That means we need to know what our hearts are trusting in. Know what our hearts are inclined to trust in that's not good. We need to then guard ourselves from going in certain areas. We need to develop what I think we could call an uh, early warning detection system for our hearts. I mean, if, if you're guarding a military establishment, you kind of would rather know when the enemy's 10 miles away than when the enemy's 50 feet away, wouldn't you? And see, the same thing is with our hearts. We, if there's a problem with our hearts, we want to know when it's just a little problem, when it's a little bit of hope directed in the wrong way, rather than when it's a big problem and it's about to destroy our lives. Guard our hearts. Know when there's the slight inclination of discontentment. And realize it's a heart problem that needs to be tackled with the Word of God. And finally, we need to develop the skill of learning how to be content in the Lord even when things are going very well. And I think this is really important. Look at Paul's language here. I don't think I'm stretching it too much, but either way, the point is true. Paul has learned to be content in whatever situation he's in, right? In the prosperous times and in the difficult times. And I think we'd be right to understand there's something where he even learns how to be content in the prosperous times. In the prosperous times, he has to learn how to be content. Now, why is that? Is that because Paul is such a grumpy person and can never be pleased? And no matter what, he's not going to be happy? No. I think it's because in the prosperous times, he needs to learn that his contentment is not in the situation. It's in the Lord. So when everything's going well, he needs to make sure that, that in that experience of everything's going well, maybe you, you got the job that you've wanted, you, the relationships is, is, is going well in your life. At those times, you can't be content simply because of the situation. In those times, your contentment must be in the Lord. We see Paul even doing that. Remember verse 10, how does it begin? Paul's gotten this gift from the Philippians, but what does he say? I rejoice in the gift? No. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that this gift has arrived. So Paul's going through one of those relatively happy times in his life. Relatively, because he's, he's still in jail. But at least now he can eat. And that makes him happy. Except 
His happiness is not in the gift. It's not in the food. It's in God. He's rejoicing in God in these proper times. And that's, that's a skill to learn. That when things are going well, we don't rejoice in the fact that they're going well. We rejoice in the Lord. And from my experience, that's one of the key factors to determine how content we're going to be when things are not going well. I mean, uh, imagine a situation where you know, things go your way, you're really happy, and then things stop going your way, and then you're very discontent. Where does the problem start? Does it start when things aren't going your well and you're discontent? No. The problem started when things were going well, but your contentment wasn't in the Lord, it was in the things. We must learn how to be content. And that means learning how to put the facts that we know about Christ and the strength that we have in Christ, learning how to put that into action to uh, actively trust in Him, actively engage in Him. Now lastly, and this is sort of to be continued, we'll talk more about this next week. The third reality here is the selflessness that results from being content. The selflessness that results from being content. Uh, Notice Paul's, what, what, what effect does Paul's radical contentment have on his relationship with other people in his life? The effect is this. He's not using the people or concerned with how these other people are going to meet his need. Instead, because his need is met in Christ, he's utterly free to be concerned about them. And you see this in this letter. As Paul is thanking the Philippians for their gift, he's much less concerned about how he's going to fare financially and and physically, and much more concerned about how he's thanking the Philippians and the relationship that he has with the Philippians. You see, if, if you're content in Christ, it frees you from being preoccupied with your own need. God is going to be concerned about meeting your needs. And, and he's pretty good at that, wouldn't you agree? Because God is concerned, and you know, he's got your back in that sense. That frees you up from not being preoccupied about how am I going to get these needs met and frees you to be others-oriented, to be concerned about them, to use your resources and your time to seek to care for and help and benefit other people. That, that's what Paul's perspective here is. You see, one of the things that I think, when we look at Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching, he doesn't speak kindly and and doesn't encourage us to really just treasure up wealth for ourselves. It's not just an issue of how we're spending our money. It's an issue of where our heart is. Our heart is trust in him. And he says, sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Live like God is really going to take care of you. And don't be so concerned about protecting yourself. Instead, entrust yourself to Jesus and radically give yourself to others. And as I think about this section, I see the wisdom of of the Bible. It's the wisdom of God and and the way that Paul encourages them to be content. See, Paul has this same attitude that he wants them to have. Paul wants them to give generously. He thanks them for the gift that they gave to him. And how does Paul encourage that attitude? Well, by having that attitude himself. Friends, how would your attitude towards your time and your resources change if you recognize the strength that God gives you in Christ for whatever situation you're in? And you recognized that no matter what resources you had, you could be content. How would that open you up to use your resources to care for others?
And there's no room in the Christian life to have an attitude of, of hoarding, to, to just try to protect ourselves and advance ourselves. Instead, our attitude should be to give and bless others. Will you do that? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the contentment that we can have in Christ. In any and every situation, we can be content because you strengthen us in Christ. And we carry you with us in good times and bad. Through plenty and through being in need. And because of that, Lord, we pray that we would know what it means to draw our strength from you. We would learn those skills. Lord, help us to put these things into practice by developing the skills we need to honor you in in and through whatever situation we're in. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.